dear god thank you for today thank you for this morning and another day in your word thank you for our journey through first john so far from chapter to chapter thank you because we take yet one more step deeper in your word i pray that there is clarity i pray that there is um revelation in your word and we're able to reflect on all that we learn in jesus name amen so um for the past uh two meetings not two weeks because i slide us two weeks ago we started the book of first john and first john like we've seen so far it's it's in a weird way it's pretty much john's perspective to what we've looked at whenever we get to the later parts of paul's ex- epistles so one of the things i've always said is that genuine theology must always lead to action it must always stir up a response there's pretty much nothing we know as believers that we know for knowing sick it's always so that we would it would stir up a particular response or so that we would live in the way god wants us to live and so the way it works with god the way it works in our faith there is first knowledge and then response and we looked at that for instance in Philemon 6 right the communication the koinonia the mutual participation of your faith becomes more effective as you begin as you, as you grow to acknowledge all the good things you have received in Christ all the good things in you rather in Christ Jesus and so Paul is saying the more you know and that's the word epignosis right it talks about a full this a proper discernment of all that you have you start to realize that your christian participation becomes more and more effective and so as we will go on even in this journey you will start to see many times where paul will attribute a flaw in action to a first of all a flaw in knowledge so for the corinthian church especially in first corinthians um i believe that's chapter chapter 3 when they were arguing about who am i who are you for and all that and he says don't you know that you are the temples of god why are you arguing over over this all things are yours in christ in um chapter 5 when there was sexual immorality he said don't you know that your body is the, the house of the holy ghost or when they were suing themselves to court said don't you know that you will judge angels because the the the, the reasoning for paul is if you know certain things it would show in how you live your life it will show in your response so for instance romans 6 as well it says that how shall we continue in sin that an expect grace to abound god for being says no he not that as many as are in christ have been baptized into his death so for paul the revelation that because i identify with christ my sinful nature has died together with him should stir up in me a realization that i have victory over sin and it will be seen in how i live my life So just like I said especially in the Pauline epistles and now we're seeing it in, in from John's perspective as well what we know as believers should stir up to stir up accompanying conduct accompanying response and that is literally what John is laboring to present he's lit- he's echoing himself 
So for instance, in ancient literature, you'd realize that one of the ways that emphasis was, was shown was by repetition. So there's repetition of words. So for instance, Jesus would say, Lord, Lord. They would say to me, Lord, Lord. It's not because he's a stammerer. It's because he's showing the emphasis on how much they perceived or they thought they, they claimed to perceive he was Lord. Right, it's it's it's. He it says, "Oh, you are a good, good father." It's not. It's not that we don't have words to fill fill the the space. It's because we're showing emphasis through repetition, and it wasn't just in words. Early writers also used it in themes. So for us today, when we speak or when we try to communicate an idea, we'll try to go introduction, we'll try to hammer it, and then we'll try to summarize or something like that. For early authors, they would use something like secular um, arguments or not secular arguments, but a case where they are repeating. It's, um, I can't remember the technical word, but they are repeating the argument from slightly varying perspectives so that every time they echo it, you it it's registers fresh in your mind with even maybe a slightly different perspective and that's why it seems like so far john is pretty much just repeating himself it's not because he doesn't have anything to write this is how to communicate emphasis so in chapter one he first started by talking about how we fellowship we identify um, we saw him right our hands have handled concerning the word of life and he said that this is what we communicate to you if you believe our words you would enter into fellowship with us and the father and i told you that a lot of things john is doing here is that he's reflecting on many of the themes that jesus emphasized during his final um final few days before his crucifixion right so one of the best ways to enjoy the book of first john is by first doing a proper study on john 13 14 and 15 and 16. then he went on to say if we say if we say we have fellowship and then he says but you don't practice it then he goes on to say if we say we have no sin if we confess our sin sorry um, if we say we have not sinned, that's First John 1. The same thing in First John um, chapter 2, right? He says that in First John 2, 4, anyone who says, I know him. First John 2, 9, anyone who says he's in the light. And I, I told you to pay attention to that last week, that what you see John doing for the um, false believer and their mercy places an emphasis on what they say. And we're going to see him do the same thing once again in chapter 3. It's always what they are saying. It doesn't correspond with action. And then when he makes that contrast and he talks about the true believer, he's always it's always um, what, you, what they do. So for instance, in 1 John 2, 4, he says, He who says, I know him, but does not do. He doesn't keep his command. He's a liar. He went on to the next verse. However, he who keeps his word emphasis on action right first john 2 9 the same thing he who says he's in the light and hates is in darkness then in verse 10 it says but he who what loves his brother he didn't say he who says he loves no he who actually in action loves his brother so there is that 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 strong emphasis that beyond words what does their Christian faith testify of? And it echoes what James would also say when he says, faith without works is dead. 
that our works testify to the to the authenticity of our faith. He said that yes, Abraham was declared righteous because he believed, but he echoed that that righteousness was proven when he was willing to give up Isaac. So it's not a contrast. It's not that Paul, I'm sorry, James and Paul are suddenly engaging in a theological battle, or James and John are like, ah, what what are you saying? Is it not grace? No. What? Yes. All the authors agree that righteousness is simply by faith or by grace through faith. But they are all unanimous in the idea that if you've been truly saved, we would see the effects in your life. If you've been truly changed by the blood, we would see the effects in your life. And then last week we went on to talk about loving the world. We talked about the Antichrist and I explained that beyond a certain historical or a certain um, future figure, which John doesn't exactly deny, and we're going to see that in Thessalonians, but much more than that, what John wants you to know about the Antichrist is that it is already at work today. It's not something you wait for. It's not something that, ah, the president of, of South Korea or North Korea would somehow evolve one day and say, ah, anyone know. He says that any teaching slash teacher that denies the identity and the ministry. I said this last week. Any teaching that denies the identity and the ministry of Jesus as the Son of God is the spirit of the Antichrist. And what is the believer's um, guard against it? John says it's the anointing. The anointing. The rub-off. And he's referring to the spirit of God. That through the Holy Spirit... Every believer can be assured about who Jesus is and what he has done in their lives. And that is exactly the same thing Jesus told them, that when the spirit of truth comes, he would guide you into all truth. He would take of me, John 16, from verse 12 to 14, he would take of me and he would declare it to you. So basically, it was John is simply reflecting on the things Jesus told them, that because you have the Holy Ghost, Christ is revealed. Because you have the Holy Ghost, you don't need, you, you shouldn't be led astray by anyone who say Jesus isn't, isn't um, the Son of God. Jesus isn't the one who was sent by God to take away sins. Your response or your, your, your ability to withstand such heresy is because you can look inside and say, I have the Holy Ghost. I identify with God. In 1 John 2, 27, it says, the anointing you have received, he abides in you. You don't need anyone to teach you. And I told you last week that that doesn't mean that John is saying the ministry of the teacher is it has ceased, <laughs> right? He's literally teaching them by writing to them. So that can be what he's saying. Again, what he was saying is something we emphasized last week when we looked at Ezekiel 36, 26, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, that the operation of God in the new covenant is to cause such a radical change in our lives through his spirit that we become willing, willing children. He says, I'll take away the stony heart and I'll put there in its place a heart of flesh, a heart that will be sensitive to my will. He says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. In Jeremiah, it says that henceforth they won't say to anyone, know the Lord, for all shall know the Lord. 
That's the same thing John is alluding to, that by the Spirit of God we've received, by that anointing, we have been able, like we are changed so much so that we walk in the will of God. Remember Ephesians 2.10. Not only that, we are able to stand and firm in the revelation of who Jesus is. Because at the end of the day, that's why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. He is to glorify the work of the Son in the believer's life. I'll take that again. The Holy Spirit is to glorify the work of the Son in the believer's life. So for instance, we'll read Ephesians 1, like we read, I think, I can't remember how many weeks ago. It says, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. All spiritual blessings in Christ. And you ask the question, where are those blessings located? It's in the Spirit. Everything we've received because we identify with Christ, we receive in the Spirit of God. So is it forgiveness? It's because you have the Holy Ghost. Is it justification? It's because you have the Holy Ghost. Is it sonship? It's because you have the Holy Ghost. Is it the glorification of your body? It's because you have the Holy Ghost. So you see Paul in Romans, it's if the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That is always the con. If it's the same spirit, it is going to be the same experiences. If it's the same spirit, then we can identify with Christ. If it's the same spirit, then indeed we have an inheritance. If it's the same spirit, then we can walk as Jesus walks. And that's why John can speak so boldly, right in verse 27, that it says that the same anointing teaches you concerning all things. I explained what all things was. It's in context, right? It's the revelation of who Jesus is and his work. And it's not a lie. And just as he has taught you, or it has taught you, you will abide. That is the conviction or the confidence John has because this is the work of the Holy Spirit. You read Ezekiel, you read Jeremiah, you can say, does, the, does this person have the Holy Spirit? I trust the Spirit of God in them. They won't be led astray by the teachings of the Gnostics that are prevailing in our day. And we should have the same confidence for ourselves and for each other. Of course, there's a sense in which we keep ourselves accountable, but there should be that confidence that I have, the, I have an anointing. I've received the Spirit of God. I will not be led astray. I've received the Spirit of God. I will not be led astray. Amen. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to today. 1 John chapter 3. So that's, I believe that's a, um, that was a, a necessary um, summary of all that we've discussed. And John starts in chapter 3. I'm reading from the NKJV. It says, behold, literally means look like, look at this, right? What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. It says, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Again, he ties our identity as children to the identity of Jesus as sons. And you see the same thing in verse, first, I'm sorry, I said first Corinthians, I'm low before, John 14, where Jesus speaks, says, I'll pray the Father, John 14, 16 and 17, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. It says the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because he doesn't see him 
neither knows him. So John is saying the same thing once again, that the world doesn't doesn't acknowledge or doesn't recognize us as sons of God. Why? Because this is something that can only be seen through the eyes of the Spirit. So we are children because we have all received the same Spirit. That's why it goes on in verse 2. It says, Beloved, when? Now are we children of God? Not when Jesus comes. Because we have the Holy Ghost now, we are children now. So the Spirit is that agency by which we identify as sons and daughters of God. And it says, it is not yet revealed what we shall be. So this is literally the same thing Paul says in Romans 8, that the world waited earnestly for the manifestations of the sons of God. And if you read on down that chapter, what is the manifestations of the sons of God? It's the glorification of the children of God when Christ appears. That's your manifestation. So when when next you hear someone say, I pray that you will manifest as a son of God, they are literally praying for your death. (laughs) right that's 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 what paul was teaching on that the world or all of creation is anticipating the coming of christ and the glorification of our bodies the once again the you can say the restoration of creation that is what the world anticipates and that's what john is saying here as well now we are the children of god but it's not yet revealed what we shall be so we are not in our true form well, how they used to describe that? This is a, I can't, I can't remember what movie to even allude to. But Shad, this is now our final state. This is just temporary. It says, we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him. We will be like him. It says, for we would see him just as he is. So it's the same thing. There is something at work on our inside that not only makes us children, but that guarantees that at the moment Jesus is revealed, straight up, will be changed as well. And so Paul would say the same thing. He says that at that point, corruption will take on incorruption. Mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. At the, at the trump of God, at the moment Jesus is revealed, we will change. And then the world that somehow doesn't know us, at that point, we'll finally say, ah, this indeed were the children of God. It's very similar to what happened in Mark when Jesus was crucified. And after the earthquake, after everywhere was dark, hi, Bimi, welcome. Everywhere was dark and everything. And then you see the Roman soldier. After they have killed him, we said, truly, truly, this was the son of God. I'll say, oh, there is now you is now you know that it was the son of God, and it's very similar. The world doesn't recognize us as children of God. It doesn't really say because, and it's ironic because let's say you interact with people of different faiths as well, people that might even acknowledge that there is a God. They look at you and they don't say anything like, ah, this one a child of God. At best, because of your moral excellence, say this one is different. But it says at the revelation of God it would be clear that indeed these ones are born of God. These ones are born of God. And what is, remember I told you, knowledge is never for knowledge's sake. How does this, what kind of response should this stir up? Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Many things to say from this verse. First of all, it says he has this hope in him. Remember Colossians, Christ in you, the what? The hope of glory. And I explained what glory meant. It's right. It's literally the glorification of our bodies. 
That's why Peter will say, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of what? Glory. Referring to that anticipation that once Jesus calls you, you literally just tear your skin. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll see you guys later. He says, anyone who has that hope that there is a coming glorification, there is coming a time where I will truly be all that God has made me to be. I will be just as he is. What should it stir up? It will cause you to keep yourself pure. And I love why I love how John phrased this. He says, just as he is pure. So there is first an identity revelation that indeed you are pure. Why? Because you are a child of God. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. But it says, if you truly believe that, you will keep yourself pure. So now all of a sudden, verses like, be holy, for I am holy. You have to realize that holiness was first of all your identity. I mean, think about it. All through, I'm, I'm digressing on a small teaching on holiness now. You look through the Old Testament. When were things first described to be holy? Is it because of what they did? Of course not. One of the very place, first places you see holiness was where Paul and God, Paul, Am I worshipping Paul? <laughs> God told Moses, take off your sandals because where you are standing is holy ground. A non, an inanimate object. It has not sinned. It has not even done right. So you see that the ground's holiness had nothing to do with the ground. What made it holy? The presence of God that was there. You see, even, <laughs> even the design of the temple, it says all the, the bread, the lampstands, all these things were holy. And so you couldn't use them for any other thing apart from the service of God. Why? Because the presence of God, they were associated with God. So you see that for even like the same way, inanimate objects were called holy things because of the association with a holy God. How much more the believer, the reason you are first and foremost holy is because God lives in you. Not because you've done anything yet. It's because God lives in you. But then John now goes on to say, because you are holy or because you are pure, purify yourself. It's the same thing we've emphasized over and over again. Because of who you are, you do certain things. You do what you do first because of who you are. So you don't act holy so that you would somehow one day be classified as holy. If you like work righteousness from now till tomorrow, if the spirit of God isn't on your inside, you are not holy. You are common. That's the that's the opposite of the word holy. Actually, it means there's nothing special there. So what made things holy? So for instance, you see um, Jacob lying down on a field. He had a vision. Angels ascending and descending, and he woke up. What's the first? He said, "God was in this place, and I knew it not." He discerned that this is holy ground. Was he holy before? No. What made he holy? God was there. So if God is on your inside, you should always keep it in mind. I am holy. I am set apart for God. That's literally what it means. I'm set apart for God. And it's because of that revelation that we now say, oh, I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't do this. I don't do that. First of all, because I am, therefore I do. And that's what John is saying. If you have this hope that I'm a child of God, but I would even be glorified upon the revelation of Jesus, 
you could type it and maybe I'll take it at the end of if the first stop section I'm a child of God and because I would be revealed or oh, sorry I'll be glorified at the revelation of Jesus therefore I walk in purity because I am pure I am pure and this is how we as believers respond to eternity every meditation we have on the hope of glory it should stir up good conduct again why because of what John said in the previous chapter the world is passing away so even from a logical perspective because of how temporary the world is it makes no sense to live for it it makes no sense to live for it and so if you see any believer living carelessly so caught up in whatever it may be oh your business oh career oh this oh that it shows that somewhere along the line like peter said you have become short-sighted you've forgotten that there is eternity waiting for you you've forgotten that there's eternity waiting for you and so you see peter in second peter 3 verse 11 it says therefore since all these things will be dissolved talking about the earth right it says be rolled away it says what manner of persons you ought to be second peter 3 11 because all these things will be dissolved what manner of persons you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness there's no way you would reflect on the temporal nature of this world and the eternal hope you have waiting for you and it won't show in how you live your life there are just some things you'd be like it's not even worth it's not worth losing my cool over it, may, it has no eternal relevance there will be some things you'll be like ah, I can't I can't sacrifice for this. I can't go ahead and do this. It, it has no bearing on the light of eternity. And so the person that realizes that this world will be dissolved, the person that realizes that they have a hope waiting for them, they would respond accordingly. They would respond accordingly. Okay, I I'll get to your question. I'll get to your question. It says whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness verse 4 and sin is lawlessness that's the word anomia in the greek you have no law you are a law unto yourself so what Paul, john describes as sin is you literally have no regards for the standards god has set and you choose to act as you wish you choose to determine what is good and evil remember the garden the knowledge right so with the tree comes the knowledge of good and evil what that simply means it doesn't mean that so even before they ate of the fruit they knew they were not supposed to eat the tree that is a that is a form of knowledge of what is good and what is wrong they said that we know we're not supposed to do this that's why they were ashamed but what what you see that translating to is that man was literally taken into his hands the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong we took that away from god and we said no I w- I want to be the one to determine what is right and that, that is literally lawlessness unto yourself. And I want you to pay attention to that word commits. If possible maybe underline it. Right? Is the word poeo in the Greek. Not much emphasis on the pronunciation as much as the meaning behind it. And you're going to see why that is important. It literally means to do. But the quest or to continue in something to commit to cause or to continue in something and that's important because many times we've read this and 
let me not even get ahead of myself but just just take note of that word commit there we're going to see it so many more times in the next verses and it would help you understand what john is saying in verse 5 it says you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin so once again like i've told you if it's the same author that wrote first john 1 and first john 3 then the common interpretation of confession of sins is very wrong because it clearly says Jesus came to take away sins god bless the esv because that's where i'm actually going jesus came to take away sins and in him there is no sin so if you are in christ remember john 14 in that day you know that i'm in the father and you are in me and i am in you if you are in christ if there is no sin in christ there's no sin in you He literally just said it in verse 3 you are pure so the person who identifies with 1 John 3:5 cannot come to the presence of God in quotes right and start saying i am a sinner no you are pure <laughs> what do you mean you are a sinner right let's go on it says whoever abides in him does not sin and i explained john 15 last week and that's why we went, we did a mini bible study that to abide is not what or to bear fruit is not what we thought it was before right first of all bearing fruit would first refer to a positive response to the gospel which of by that time the apostles had already done don't forget that the conversations jesus had at that point judas was not there So he was speaking to people that were going to actually follow him till the end of their lives. And so that's what he called first of all bearing fruit and he went on to talk about abiding and we looked at that um last week when Paul said John says just as he abides in you abide in him talking about responding or continuing in the influence of the Holy Spirit that you have received. And so he says whoever abides in him does not sin. So now pause. The same person that wrote this verse, if he is truly the same person that wrote 1 John 2:1, then we have to be careful in how we interpret this. This cannot be a one-time thing. Because in 1 John 2, what does he say? My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. If anyone sins, does he say he is he is a child of the devil? No. He says if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father so for him to say that about sin just one chapter earlier and now to now say if you abide in him you cannot sin he's literally contradicting the allowance he made just a few verses ago so clearly this cannot be referring to the occasional stumbling of the believer this is referring to just like i also said in the esv practice and it's the same word commits Where it says does not sin it's the negation of the word commit right it's literally the negation of that word that he doesn't do this it says whoever sins has not seen him he doesn't know him so clearly this is not the, the person in first john 2 verse 1 that sins and paul says i'm sorry john says you have an advocate so in one category john is telling you you sinned Oh, you have an advocate with the father. Now we saying if you sin, you don't know, you don't even know him. Clearly these are two different categories. In one occasion he's talking about the believer who is in the light, 
that may be tripsome. Here he's talking about someone who makes a practice. Remember I told you in Galatians when he says walk, the word peripetal in the Greek, literally to conduct your life. It says walk in the spirit and you will not. So a person who consistently walks in the flesh cannot be truly saved. That is the same thing John is saying. It's the same thing Paul has said. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness. Again, do you see that word? So once again, the emphasis is that John is not talking about one-time occasions. He said, he that practices righteousness. The word in the KJV is, he that doeth righteousness. And it's the same word, poel. It's the same thing as when he said sin in verse 4. He that doeth righteousness. So he that makes it a practice to walk in righteousness is righteous. Just as who? Jesus is righteous. Do you see that? How you can post, okay, the ESV, I think I have the ESV here. Yes, he, okay, says he will practice this. All right, so let's, let's, okay, let's go on. Verse eight, but he who sins is of the devil. <laughs> so clearly, this person who is sinning here is not the same person who John made allowance for in First John 2 verse 1. This person here is, it's, it cannot refer to a one-time act, but a practice of sin. So when he says he who sins, he's saying he who practices sin is of the devil because the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. What would be the works of the devil here? Sin. It's the same thing he said in verse 5. Remember I told you about repetition. The way you create emphasis is by repetition. So in 5, he just said he was literally manifested to take away sins. Now he says it again in verse 8. He was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. So sin is the work of the devil. So he would always repeat, but take on it. He would just take a slightly different perspective so that you can have more insight into what he's trying to say. He goes on to repeat himself in verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. He lit, and he says, for his seed, that's the seed of God, is in him. Remember I told you, previous verse, you have an anointing. You have the spirit of God. So that's what he's alluding to now. It says you've been born of God. You do not sin and you cannot <laughs> sin. If this cannot sin was, you cannot, if you want to lie, immediately your tongue will just hook. Mm, I can't. Who took this thing? I'm about to say, it's not me. And then, mm, you just hold your tongue and they say, you cannot sin. That's not what John is saying. That's not what John is saying. Again, the emphasis is on the practice. The emphasis is on the practice. He literally, no person born of God can continually walk in sin. <laughs> As in, no person born of God can continue. He says, why? Because he has been born of God. And that's why he started by saying, little children, you are children of God. You are children of God. And now he goes on in verse 10 again. In this, the children of God, because you've been born of God. The day you received the Holy Spirit, that's where we got the word born again. You got the Holy Spirit. He says, you are a new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. And he says, all things are what? Of God. And that's the same thing he says here. In this, the children of God and children of the devil are made manifest. Whoever does not practice, so that's the emphasis again, practice righteousness is not of God. 
and no is he who does not love his brother so the emphasis john wants you to know is that we can discern salvation through conduct it's the same thing faith without works is dead right and that's why you notice for instance in first corinthians when there was someone who was literally at that point in time sleeping with his mother in law not only that he was proud of it pauses what kick him out <laughs> he says this one ah he says please kick him out yes it's for a while yes it's to verify and see okay will he at this even come to repentance but the the response of the church to anyone who claims to be saved and consciously continuously walks in sin i'm not saying addiction addiction is something you are fighting i'm saying something you delight you continuing you say i'm a liar a believer i'm a liar if i lie you cannot even tell you will never know if i'm a believer say so we should we should actually kick you out maybe it would drive you to repentance and then would receive you again but like john said whoever is born of god does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of god there is a sense in which this is true objectively like it is it is reality whoever has the spirit of god cannot continuously consciously and willingly live in sin it's not possible but there's even also a practical aspect just like we've read so far in which it is this realization this very realization that would now help you not to even make those occasional sins that that um, John talks about in chapter 2 that's why I says i i write so that you will not sin the expectation is that the believer would live a life of perfect moral excellence of course because of let's say flaws in 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 devotion and the influence of the external world once in a while a believer can can go mad <laughs> and then you that you're meant to be peaceful you suddenly give in to anger you that you're meant to be to be moderate you somehow give in to an excess one way or the other perhaps is entertainment perhaps is money but the belief um sorry the, the word of god from john says because you have the holy spirit on your inside you will you cannot you cannot continuously comfortably continue in sin you have been born of god amen amen verse 11 it says this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should what love one another again it's the same thing remember we just read it old command new command it's the same command you've always had love one another it is not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother and why did he murder his brother he says because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous so now just i want you to pay attention in 1 john 3 verse 1 it talks about a distinction between the people of the world and the people of god it says the people of the world cannot recognize us because they don't know god So there's already some form of distinction and he's going to go on to go he gives a practical example Cain and Abel Abel was approved of God Cain was not his works were evil Abel's works were righteous and as a result what does he say in verse 13 
Don't marvel if the world hates you. So Cain and Abel suddenly become archetypes for children of God and children of 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 the world, or children of the devil, literally. Right? So that's why in verse 10 it says the children of God and children of the devil are manifest. He uses Cain and Abel as archetypes. So one is Abel, the one whose works were approved by God, the one who walks in righteousness. The other is Cain, the one whose works were evil and rejected, but not only that, he now ended up hating the child of God even unto murder. And that is the example John uses in this chapter to say don't be surprised if the world hates you. The same way Cain had beef, and these were brothers, because God had approved of them. Says it's the same thing. People will, people will hate you because all of a sudden, um, you claim to be known by God, and you are walking in His statutes. Says the world will hate you. Says don't don't marvel, don't deceive. That's terrible. Forget I said that. I'll delete that from the recording. <laughs> but don't be surprised when people hate you. It says we have known, we have we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren because we love the brethren he who does not love his brother abides in death and that's why he's saying literally your brother do you see that that's why he uses Cain and Abel because now believers are your spiritual brethren so if you if you hate someone that you identify as a brother it says what Cain is your father <laughs> You are just like Cain. You are of the wicked one. He says, that's how we know we have passed from death to life because we love believers. It says in verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That's, you see that? That's why you see like things like hatred and murder because we saw the first example in Cain. He hated Abel or he was so overwhelmed by anger and jealousy that he murdered him. So this is the same spirit that Cain acted in. And it says, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, he uses the description of murderer because it is a practice. It is a practice. Hatred is not a is not just an act. Hatred is a state of being. You hate someone. If you hate your brother, we, the love of God cannot be in you. And that's why sometimes when believers say, I hate this guy, I'm like, uh-uh. I know you don't mean hate as in hate, but be very careful. Look at how strong the words we read are. How can you, born of God, fellow believer, I hate this guy, Lenwe, you're not afraid, you're not, you're not, it doesn't move you. It says, by this we know love. Because he laid down his life, Jesus, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And I said this when we're reading Colossians, that the life of Jesus, we see it not only as something that benefited us, but as something that stirred us up as an example. So Jesus becomes the standard. He's the big bro, right? And whatever we see in him, we can replicate. Why? Because it's the same spirit. And so if Jesus, in the spirit of love, would lay down his life for us, we, in the spirit of love, ought to lay down. And he, he doesn't say that, oh, you have to die, right? He's, he's, what, does, what he does is that he uses the same description to show you the extent you should be willing to go. It basically means to put them first. And he goes on to give a practical example of what laying down your life for a brother or a sister would look like. 
He says, whoever has this world's goods, verse 17, and you see your brother in need, and you say, um, ah, they say, bro, please, do you have um, do you have food for me? My food has finished, this and that. I say, no, you know, <laughs> I don't have anything, no. He says, how can you, how does the love of God abide in such a person? And it's amazing. And I, I, I don't know if you you come you you think about this sometimes because James used the very same example when he was teaching um, righteousness by faith, righteousness by work. He says, if your brother is naked and de- or sister is naked and destitute of food, and you say to him, go in peace, be filled, <laughs> you lay hands and say, the Lord provides. There is provision. Our God is providential. Blah, blah, blah. You make all those claims. But you don't do anything about it. He says, ah, what does it profit? What does it profit? Again, do you see the contrast? In one case, one is just saying. It's easy to talk. It's very easy to say anything. He says, but in the other, he says, you don't do anything about it. Someone needs you. That he literally is about, he needs food. He has no provision. Let's say his parents are going through it. I'm not saying this person is a wasteful person now. There are some people, like for instance, I remember in school, these are people that every day, they would rather buy Coke and iced tea and Chivita than at night they'll be begging for pure water. And I'm like, don't you have sense? A bag of pure water is 100 naira. Literally the same, less than the price of just one Chivita pack. You cannot buy a pack of Chivita, I'm sorry, of pure water. You're not coming to beg. That's different. Now you are a wasteful person. We don't encourage such behaviors. I'm not saying you should be um, you should be um, unsympathetic as well, but you can be firm in such things. So, so for instance, a person who is who um, who you give the person comes to ask for help, he wastes it. You try to help the person set up a business, he he lets it go to the drain. That person is lazy. Paul says a lazy man should not eat. So that's different. This is talking about someone who genuinely is as well about Chivita. It used to annoy me then because it happened a lot. And I would always have like one or two bags of filter every time because you never know when it can finish. <laughs> it can be yet, yet today, gone tomorrow. It's, it's, it's like smoke. But it, I mean, there are certain conducts that we shouldn't encourage. So that that's not what this is referring to. This is talking about someone who is in genuine need. You see someone, he says, oh, my child needs money for school fees. You can't even, and you have the ability to, I'm not saying you to, you are trusting God. <laughs> we are all believing God for a better tomorrow. But you have the ability, and that's why I says you have this world's goods. And you say, go and the Lord will provide. I believe God by this time tomorrow. No, you are, you are not okay. You are a liar. <laughs> you, you are the one through which God will provide. And think about it. It's amazing that the same way James uses that to describe faith and works. John now is using that to describe loving the brethren. He doesn't say, oh, you you, 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 um, you wish them well. He doesn't know. The very first example that comes to their mind when he talks about loving believers, it's in the physical, practical things. In both of them, it's about generosity. So think about it. It's easy to shout, I love you, Lord. We are heads of the Father. We are jointed. We are family. And everyone is vibing. But do you really mean that? We would see it in your generosity. We would see it in you being willing to lay down your life. And I told you that means to put 
believers first. I know as I'm saying this today, God is going to probably test me on this this week, <laughs> but as well, well, we'll pass. Um, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We put them first. We put them first. We see their needs and we realize, even if it's sometimes inconvenient. So, so for instance, you see the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians. The Jerusalem church was going through a famine. These Macedonian people were, they were poor. It says, but out of their poverty, they are bounded in generosity because they had gone to a point where indeed, and this is literally how you can tell that this person has been born of God. In spite of their poverty, they're like, ah, no, we have to do something for this. We would never have been saved if these Jerusalem people weren't there in the first place. And in spite of their lack, they gathered to provide for them. And so Paul will now go on to tell the Corinthian church, yes, people are word men. Yes, you know the word. Yes, you pray. Yes, you flow in the gifts. He says this generosity part is so important. If you do all those things and now you, you, you lack, you that you guys are not, you are even well to do, you somehow cannot provide. That's a big problem. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. And that's why he goes on in verse 18 to say, let us not love in word or in tongue. Again, it's that distinction between what is said and what is done but indeed and in truth. Ah, I love you. I love the body of Christ. I love you. You might say, when push comes to show, will you truly love? It says, don't love in words or in talk. And it's not saying that you shouldn't, you shouldn't say good things. I would, I would rather say, don't let us not love in word or in tongue alone, but let it also be accompanied with corresponding action. So yes, congratulations. You pray for the believers. Please keep praying. It's important. Yes, you you sing songs and you you hold hands and you you can go out and everyone is having a good time and we're all just you know. Yes, that's amazing. But when it is time to lay down your life for another believer, please, please, and please realize that that is an opportunity to show that indeed you have been born of God. I think it was Pastor Shegun that I, I first heard this from on um, a teaching titled Believers Love. And he said, any opportunity, like, see, be very, um, get to a point where you see like, see all these things as opportunities to walk in love. So someone is provoking you. For some reason or the other, it's like, the person doesn't have sense anymore. <laughs> it just vanished the night before. See it as an opportunity to walk in love. See it as an opportunity to hone your forgiveness skills. Someone is, is, is needy around you. See it as an opportunity to walk in love. Someone is, is whatever, whatever it may be, rather than doing what the world would do. Don't forget, it says, this is how we know that we have passed from death to life. 3 verse 14, John 1 John 3 14, because we love. So it is our testimony. Whenever you see a believer that is willing to share, you see a believer that even in spite of inconvenience, is able to do something because of the brethren. It is a testament that indeed the love of God has been perfected in him. And that's why it now says, by this we know. So that is the testimony. By this we know that we are of the truth and we shall assure our hearts before him. He now goes on to say, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And usually... 
let me read on first. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And usually um, theologians um, are split on the interpretation of verse 20. Some would say, if your heart is, on, is condemning you, but it's, it's false condemnation, like you're just guilty, God is greater than your heart and God would truly um, see that, oh no, you are doing the right thing. The other, I don't subscribe to that interpretation because I don't think it flows with the context. What what I believe John is saying, and I agree with all the theologians that say that as well, is that if your heart condemns you because you have failed to walk in love, how much more God, who is greater than the heart, he sees all, right? He does see all, and so he knows. And that's why, if, because literally the previous verse just said, that by this we know we are in the truth and we shall assure our hearts before him. Right? So this will be referring to the person that for one reason or the other has failed to walk in love and now his heart is condemning the person. And if that's what your heart is doing, how much more God? He now says, if our heart does not condemn us, the same thing he said in verse 19, we assure our hearts before him. If our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Pretty much what he's saying in summary is to say that first of all, right, as believers, you ought to love one another. But not only that, if you fail to do that, even your very heart will let you know that what you've done is wrong. What you've done is wrong. Amen. So I beg us, please, please, and please take advantage or see, let us live our lives and let us be sent, see things more and more as not just an old person that knows, see it as an opportunity to walk in love. See it as an opportunity to be just like your father. See it as an opportunity to testify once more that indeed I have passed from death to life. Whether it's forgiveness, see it as an opportunity. Change your mind to that, ah, I have to forgive. Shabia, I have to, because, because of God. So we'll say, if not for God. You, are, you should listen to that statement. What do you mean, if not for God? Are you now not of God? You should see it as an opportunity to love. That yes, this is an opportunity to forgive, just as I have been forgiven. Yes, this is an opportunity to give. And that's why John and Paul would use the, the examples of Jesus says, the, it says, forgive as you have been forgiven. It says that you know about the grace of our Lord, the generosity, the grace of Jesus in that he was rich, but though he became poor so that you might be rich. And so as believers now, we, can, we should be willing to, to take out of our wealth to help others. He is the example. Say, ah, if Jesus could give up so much privilege for my benefits, I would also do the same for a brother. It might be inconvenient. It might not be the easiest thing to do, but I would do so. Because first of all, I've seen it in Christ. Remember, we looked at this um, last week, that the motivation is Christ. The reason it's a new commandment is number one, the motivation is Christ. But more than that, the ability to do it is in the spirit of Christ. Thumbs up if that, that, that makes sense. I, I hope that's clear. Again, these are not seriously theological, um, like it's not something that should be confusing, but it's something that you should bear in mind. Keep it in mind. 
It says, whatever we ask of him, now says, and whatever we ask of him, we receive. Because we keep his commands and do things that are pleasing in his, in, in his sight. So first of all, there's the allusion that we are children. And then much more than that, as children, we walk in love. As children, our hearts are assured. And so we can come before him boldly and say, Daddy, I need this. And it's amazing how there's always something about this asking and receiving that's always tied to the identity of the believer. So Jesus in John 14, he said the same thing. We could turn our Bibles quickly there. John 14, right after I said greater works, it says, "You whatever you ask in my name, John 14, 13, I will do that the Father will be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do. In the next verse, he goes on to say very similar things, right? In in um um sorry, give me a second. Let me let me locate what I'm looking for. Uh sorry, my Bible. This is why you should be able to you should use flip flip Bible. <laughs> I'm trying to um all right, so let's let's go. So in in I said in in John 14, 13 and 14, in John 15, 7, it says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, you would ask whatever you desire. In John 15, 16, it said it again, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit and your fruit should remain, that whatever you want, ask the Father. So there is always this something about because of our identity as children, because we, we abide in God, because of the Holy Ghost, and because we walk in accordance, there is a certain boldness that through the name of Jesus, we now have access to the Father. We have access to the Father. Amen. So let's go back to First John. Let's go back to First John. Again, many of these things are not things that, that should be new. If they are, then congratulations. You, you are receiving a double dose. But even if they aren't, Paul will say things like, for me to repeat it is for your benefit. And that's what John is doing here. He's repeating things that he expects them to know because it is so important. It is so important. And then finally in John, um, 1 John 3.23, it says, this is his commandment that we should what? Believe on the name of his son and that we should love one another. So for instance, in Matthew 28 verse 18, when it says, go into the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. It says it here, this is the command. Believe in Jesus and love one another. It is he who keeps his command abide, John 15, correct? He who keeps his commandments abides in him. So to abide in the vine, it's simply to maintain or to, to keep the faith and to walk in love. Simple. It's nothing esoteric or it's nothing um, grand, um, that, that is out of our reach. To abide is to simply maintain the integrity of your salvation and to walk in love. Simple. And as I said, by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So you see the same repetition. He's repeating the themes of abiding, repeating the themes of love, repeating themes of commandments. Those three words, I'm sure we've heard it so many times between last week and now. Abide, love, and commandment because it goes hand in hand. Amen. I believe that's clear. All right. So we're going to run through chapter four um, in the in the next minutes we have. But I want to answer any questions. So I asked a question earlier when I was teaching about holiness. And she said, are there holy grounds, places, and things in the New Testament 
reality. I will be careful, but I'll, you can say my answer is a cautious yes. My answer is a cautious yes. And what do I mean by that? First of all, as a believer, you shouldn't need to look somewhere for for the presence of God or for for what the Old Testament would have reflected as, oh, this is a holy place. So the temple was holy. Jerusalem, in quotes, was holy, right? As believers, we house the Spirit of God. And so we are, by nature, holy. We are, by nature, holy. But what did I say holiness was? I said something that has been set apart for the use of God or something that you can associate with the presence or the, or the, or the, um, the, the glory, in quote, of God. And the truth is, yes, there are times like that. So it's, it's, and the reason I said it's a cautious yes is because, for instance, you'd see that, oh, you pray over mantles and all of a sudden it no longer becomes an ordinary handkerchief. It is now something that the power of God rests on and can be used to cure diseases. For an undiscerning person, you can still use it to blow your nose. <laughs> you can use it to dust your furniture. But for a discerning person, you can discern the power of God resident in that in that in that handkerchief. So it's not as though, for instance, in the Old Testament, they say, ah, this is the handkerchief of God. Anything. No, 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 no. But because you as a believer have placed power or have placed the deposit of God on that physical material, in a sense, it is holy, set apart for a specific use. It's the same thing for for um for instance, and this is more experiential in the sense in which um I've read I've read testimonies or even just um how do I put this? So for instance, let's say as a minister of the gospel, you've ministered with a certain suit. And then you could receive an instruction. Let's say you are blessing someone you disciple. And you say, oh, give him this suit. <laughs> of course, the, that person you are giving should know that he has the spirit of God in him. But there is a sense in, in which um, because of the, of, 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 the, of the grace by which you minister, it can it can be in quotes transferred and this is so that's why i said my answer is a cautious yes is because there's no clear-cut rule to this where we know god resides today is in the believer however through the believer god can influence physical things and that's why i said it's a very cautious it's not in the same way it was in the old testament but in a sense things or physical objects can be in quotes described as holy because we have placed deposits of God there. And so you can see someone, I've heard testimonies like, let's say you have a prayer room or something, you pray there every day, and then it says, oh, someone is sick, and you just tell the person, just take them to that room. Let them sleep on the bed I've slept, and they wake up and they are perfectly healed. Do you understand? Because of you, even that, it's the same way, because of God, the ground was described as holy. Because of you, for someone who is able to receive by faith. That's always the condition because an undiscerning person can sleep there and nothing will happen. <laughs> he'll, he'll sleep and say, this bed is too hard. <laughs> he'll wake up. But for someone who can discern the power of God, believer or unbeliever, they can receive because it is associated with you where God dwells. I hope that's clear. Yeah, I mean, you can.
I hope that's clear. All right, all right. Any other questions before we move to the next chapter? So my answer is a cautious yes. <laughs> it's not a resounding yes. It's a cautious, as long as you understand what you're doing, I, I do believe so. And so for instance, you read even like um, in the early healing movement, what they'll do is that these are people that they'll pray over the healing magazines. And then testimonies will come that as soon as I touched this magazine, I was healed. It's because, because of the believer, they have transferred power. They have transferred virtue. And because the power and the glory of God resides on that object, by definition, it is set apart for a specific use. And like I said, in the hands, just like it talks about Esau, Esau was what? Profane. That word there is shoki. It literally means you don't see the value of certain things. And so for a five-year-old, you give them an iPhone 12, and they are smashing it, they're using it as hammer. Because what? They can't discern value. To them, it's nothing more than a mirror slash hammer. <laughs> right? It's the same thing that people can do today for things that <laughs> for things that are so like that are sacred. It's possible for someone not to believer or unbeliever to discern that ah, all is wrong, Joe. I beg, is it not, is it not just is it not just uh, is it not just bed? Is it not just handkerchief? For you to just be a handkerchief and you will be described as profane. But for the person who can discern that indeed the power of God rests on this object, they can receive by faith. Amen. All right. Let us round up for today. First John 4. I will squeeze through this chapter <laughs> because time is not us and i really do not like keeping us beyond time but let's let's see how we can go if we don't if i can't finish i'll actually just pause i wouldn't rush the worry. if we can't finish i'll pause and we'll continue and we'll, but the plan is to finish first john next week let's see what god will have it says beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are of god because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's going back to the teaching on the Antichrist, right? And he says, don't believe everyone. Don't forget what is the context that you are of God, little children. Oh, you are of God. Everybody now is of God. He says, no, don't believe every spirit. What does it mean to believe a spirit or to test a spirit? He is referring to the influence of the spirit seen in the teachings, seen in the teachings and that's why in first corinthians so paul said no one can call can, can say jesus is lord except by the holy spirit so the spirit at work in a person would influence the things that come out of his mouth and that's why he says don't believe every spirit is it is it how do you well, how do you interact with the spirit by the teachings of those who identify with that spirit it says test the spirit Another way will be to say, test the teachings by these people. It says whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. It says by this, you know the spirit of God. So he says the very same thing. How can you discern a spirit by what is said? He said every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So it's not that you'll be sitting there and then spirit just asking, ah, Jesus Christ is of God. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. But he says, by the teaching, because the people, he calls them false prophets. These are people that might hold, in quotes, positions. There'll be teachers in, in that identify with the body. He says that through what they teach, you can tell what spirit they are of. 
And remember what I told you about the Gnostics. One of the key philosophies in their day was that anything physical was by nature sinful, by nature useless. And so by that definition, God could never have taken on flesh. So they deny the physical, um, um, inc- they deny the incarnation. And that is so, it's, that's very, that's so serious in terms of implications. Because if you deny the incarnation, then Jesus could not have died. If Jesus did not die, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are not a Christian. Because you don't have the Holy Ghost, you are not forgiven. All of this is a waste of time. So you you might think, uh, uh, so, so what if, no. If you deny the incarnation already, you have denied Christianity as a whole. If you deny the death, you've denied Christianity. If you deny the resurrection, you've denied Christianity. If you deny the ascension, you have denied Christianity. Because each of every single one of these aspects are so interwoven into what we know to be the faith we have. And that's what he's saying. Any spirit seen in the teachings that denies any of these things is the Antichrist. That's why it says in verse 3, any spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that you heard was coming and is now already in the world. So he's, again, I told you, repetition. Repetition. Emphasis by repetition. The very same things he taught in chapter 2. He's letting you know in their in their context and in their case because of the prevailing heresy in their day it was about the it was about Jesus in the flesh today it can be anything any spirit that denies the existence of a god any spirit that denies the lordship of Christ any spirit that denies the gospel is the spirit of the antichrist amen so don't be waiting for um the next United States President, I will somehow say, henceforth, we must not take 666. It's amazing that we, we sometimes think that. Do you think after everything we've, we, the body, the world knows today, someone would literally come and say 666? Do you actually think that? Anyways, we're not doing journey through revelations, but it's all to think about. If you actually think that, that they'll put six on your forehead, who, who, who will be that obvious? <laughs> who will be that obvious? <laughs> but anyways, let's go on. Um, it says, what's up, this <laughs> It says, you are of God, little children. Again, repetition. This is the second thought. In fact, people like the fifth time we're saying this. And you have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. A common verse that we have used that, ah, I cannot be held down. Greater is he that is in me. That is, and it's not wrong. But please and um, please, before you go on to other contexts, pay attention to the immediate context. When it says you have overcome them, Danny, them, them is false teachers. Them is false teachers. Why? Because the spirit, you don't forget, he's referring to teaching by virtue of the spirit at work behind that teaching. So he's saying the reason you will not be influenced by this by these spirits, the reason you will not be influenced by these teachings is because the spirit in you is greater than the one in them. Right? John's context immediately was not about overcomers' mentality. Even though, yes, 
right? The reason we can overcome or the reason we can rise above the systems of this world is because God is greater than the systems of this world. But the direct context behind what John is teaching is that the reason we would overcome false teachers, the reason we would not be swayed away by the teachings of these antichrists in quotes, the reason we can stand our ground in the face of false teachings is because the spirit at work in us is greater than the spirit at work in them. So we have overcome because we have the Holy. It's the same thing he said in chapter 2. You have an anointing from the Holy One. Therefore, I can be confident that you will not be led astray. It's the same thing he's saying. You have the Spirit of God. And so you have already even overcome. It didn't say you will. It says you have overcome them. And so, yes, the applicative implications of that can translate to more than just false doctrine. But bear in mind the immediate context John is referring to here. Does that make sense? I, I believe that's clear, right? Thumbs up. So this common verse, once again, if I've shocked you, that's positive. That's good shock. But this is what John was referring to. He goes on to say, they are of the world. Who is they again? The Antichrists. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as the world and the world hears them. So sometimes don't be surprised when falsehood thrives. Remember John John 3, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he says, this is their judgment, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness more than they love light. Paul will say in the last days, people will be, they'll have itchy ears. That word there means they want to always hear something new. Everyday love, everyday grace, everyday sanctification. Can't we have something else? And since they will gather to themselves, false teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. So it's not, it's, don't be surprised when you see falsehood thriving, when you see a crowd around heresy. I mean, we look at the world today and we see some, 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 some weird things. You look at what we call progressive Christianity. All of a sudden, there's no more objective truth in the Bible. Everything is, cult, everything is cultural. Everything is applicative for today. Someone even went as far as saying, that um, the, the, I was watching a video the other day and this guy literally said that Jesus sinned, that um, he was called out on his wrong. And that's what was the example he cited when he called uh, the Syrophoenician woman and he said that the meat, the, the food that is meant for the children, I shouldn't give it to dogs. And then she went on to say that, oh, even dogs take on the scraps that fall on the ground. She says, I've never seen such faith be healed. And he said, Jesus was racist. I said, ah, ah has woke culture so so overcome your you don't have sense again that just was racist and then the woman called him out on it and he repented say ah <laughs> i said do you even understand the implication jesus repent your your lord and savior had sin how do, how was his sin forgiven that's the question that's one of the first questions you should think about if he sinned how was that he said jesus was racist and then the woman she was able to she was not intimidated and so it was it is now so um is you are now trying to say oh minorities stand your ground you are not okay you are not that's itchy itchy ears and he has a church he's a pastor so yeah i can imagine i can only imagine what he tells them on a sunday <laughs> wala wow <laughs> wala wow that is what you have over is that is the them that is in the world that is the them that's the greater in you that greater in in them that is in the world. Honestly, I, I couldn't even believe it because there are some things you hear and you can still say, oh, let us even use the word of God. Let's look at it. 
As much as you hear, you're like, do you even have sense? What are you saying? Jesus was racist. And then this revolution, she called him out and Jesus repented. Say, ah, this is new. We have not seen it in this manner. Anyways, let's go on. He says, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right. So again, it's the same thing that anyone who has in you, anyone who has the spirit of God in them will be able to discern teachings that align with the spirit of God. And of course, this is not to say that, oh, on like a lot of other issues, people have, have swallowed beans and eba in the name of, of doctrine. But as pertaining to, don't forget what I said, the emphasis, the identity and the ministry of Christ. At least that one, because you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot be led astray. You cannot be led astray. Amen. 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 So let's go on. Let's start to round up this chapter. This is again repetition, right? Beloved, let us love one. I can imagine if because these things were read aloud. I can imagine them standing like ah, this love team, Sha, this love team, poem, John. We have heard now, we will love, we will love. Shall we? Don't write it again, we would love. It says, let us love one another. For love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The same thing he has said. Knowing God, being born of God, loving, right? And that's why I can go faster now because I've explained this over and over and over again. It says, he who does not love does not know God. Simple. It's the same, it's the same things. He's just repeating the same things. Why? Because God is love. God is love. And so, if you claim to know God, if you claim that he's your... Don't forget, um, um, Paul says the same things. Um, be, be imitators of God. Beloved children, walk in love. I think that's Ephesians 5.1. Imitators of God. Because you are his children, you can walk in love. You have seen the Father's love and you can replicate it. It says, in this, the love of God was manifested towards us. Did I skip something? Okay, no, yes. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. So, it says that that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. John 3.16, right? But what is John saying? He says that this is how the love of God is shown. So, how do you know the love of God? You know it's in the gospel. And that's why he says that you have come to know God because you have come to believe the gospel. And in that gospel is the revelation of God and his love. So a person who has not come to believe the gospel has not seen God's love in display. That's why he points it out. So even in our understanding of the gospel, we are suddenly made aware of our understanding of God. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So the gospel is not just something that God did. The, some, the gospel is something that reveals who God is. Does that make sense? And that's why it says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he goes on to now say, how do we know God is love? He showed it in the gospel. So in seeing the sacrifice and come to believe the sacrifice of Christ, like I said, you don't just know something that God did. In the gospel, you see fundamentally 
who God is. Who God is. And that's why it says everyone who loves is born of God, meaning he's saved and knows God. Be- why? Because he has seen that love. He has been made a son. He has been made a child. And in that revelation is the revelation of the love of God. And we are able to replicate it. We are able to replicate it. And that's why it goes on in verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. We see the same word in 1 John 2, right? Propitiation, my covering, right? For our sins. He sends his son to be the propitiation. So that's why I said this is the definition of love. That even when we were hating, Romans 5, right? While you still hated God, while you were still in your sin, he loved you and sent his son. So if you've come to believe that, you have come to know love. You have come to know love. You have come to know love. And so there is no believer who is lacking an example to follow. Even if you can't see it anywhere, you have seen it in the very gospel you believe. You have seen the love of God. And it says, beloved, if God so loved us, again, revelation, implication, revelation, response, revelation, response. If God loved us this way, we also have to love. It's not even a choice. You have to love one another. It says, no one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected. That's what I tell you. It has been brought to completion in us. Because the person who now loves has indeed seen God, in quotes, in the gospel. He has seen God in his sacrifice. And he, is able, he's, he has come to such a point that he is able to replicate it in his own life. So the love of God revealed in the gospel does not stop at all. I, I now know the love of God. It shows in how we respond. And it says, by this we abide in him and he in us. The same thing, abide. Why? Because he has given us. Some of these verses are almost literally the same. Because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. It's something we've seen and it's something we testify even when he says no one has seen God, that's the same thing he says in John 1. He says, but the Son has declared him. How? In, his, in the gospel. In the gospel. Jesus revealed the Father in the gospel. The love of God. You want to know what love or who God is? Look at the sacrifice of Christ. Look at the sacrifice of Christ. So this is literally an echo of John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. How did he do that? Through his sacrifice. Through his sacrifice. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So I told you again, John 15 is more a teaching on salvation than it is a teaching on on um, maybe other things that you've probably assumed it was. It says we have known and believed the love that God has for us. 
that's the, the the gospel is literally the revelation of God's love. Since God is love, he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Again, you mirror everything. He, don't forget, he's repeating things, but he's changing slightly. In verse 13, he says, abide in God, abide in us. How? The Holy Spirit. In verse 15, abide in God, abide in us. How? Confess Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 17, abide in us, abide in God, all the abides. How? Love. So in verse 16, rather, yes, love. So you see that mirror, that there is a direct correlation between having the Spirit of God, confessing Jesus as the Son of God, and walking in love. They are one and the same. And that's he, that's the intention. He did that in purpose. He repeated the idea of you abiding in God and God abiding in you, but using three different criteria to, to help you understand that those three are the same. It is the person who has acknowledged Jesus to be the Son of God that has the Holy Ghost. And it is that person who is able to walk in love. Does that make sense? Thumbs up. So I want you to pay attention to how John is using repetition to, yes, say the same things, but still slightly say different things. So the whole idea of abiding is tied to, number one, acknowledging of Jesus as God, or as the Son of God, which is the same thing, receiving the Holy Spirit, and therefore walking in love. And those three are one and the same. So the idea he wants you to understand is that everyone who acknowledges the Sonship of Christ has the Spirit of God. Don't forget that's where we just came from. The Spirit is seen in the confession of the message. So anyone who acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God has the Spirit of God. That's the first thing. Anyone who has the Spirit of God walks in love. It's the same thing he's repeating. He now goes on in verse 17. Love has been perfected in us, among us rather, in this how do we know or how how has um how has how do we know that indeed we are we, we have been brought into completion in the love of god it says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment again he's using that same idea that your your revelation of god right now in terms of love would affect the day of judgment don't forget we, we just read that even in the last chapter where it says that if we if we walk in love our hearts are sh- are, are assured before him and would have confidence towards him. It's the same thing in, in chapter 2 when he said that when he appears, 1 John 2, 28, we would have confidence and would not be ashamed. What was the criteria? Abide in him. Meaning what? Believe the gospel, continue in the Holy Spirit. So it's the same thing he's saying again, that that person who has confessed Jesus, that person who has the Holy Spirit, that person who walks in love, has been perfected in love. And as a result, he will be bold before God on the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. As who is Jesus, so are we. Is that talking about physical nature? Of course not. He just said in the previous chapter that we don't yet know what it will be like. But when we see him, we will be as he is. But there's something that even now we identify, we are one and the same. The same way in the previous chapter said, now are we the children of God. So how are we as he is in this world? We have the Holy Spirit and we walk in love. Is that clear? We are as he is because we have the same spirit and we walk in same love. We walk in same love. Amen. And as a result, we can be bold. Why? It says there is no fear in love. Have you ever seen a child 
who on no, nothing happened is afraid to go and meet his parents he didn't do anything wrong no because perfect love cast out fear perfect love cast out fear because fear involves torment i use myself as an example a lot for things like this when it comes to dogs there's i i i am afraid right so for instance let's say someone was um, let's say pitbull it's your pets there is in quotes perfect love between the both of you there's no fear you're not afraid that the people will somehow bite you or the people would uh, will run mad at no but me that i know nothing about your dog almost there's if it's not even perfect there's no love at all there's only fear <laughs> only fear because i don't know what your dog would do to me and it's very similar there's nothing as a believer you have no reason to be afraid as in it doesn't bite don't worry it's strange it doesn't bite now so Lori Rock next thing we know you are going to hospital for <laughs> uh, rabies rabies uh, injection anyways it says there is no fear in love so if truly the love of god has been perfected in you there's nothing to fear nothing all you see in your relationship with god is perfect love perfect love it says fear involves torment so this now for instance is fear of hell or fear of judgment says anyone who fears has not been made perfect in love but you have been made perfect in love so that you ha- you should have nothing to that's why for instance you see the descriptions when it talks about the coming of the lord for believers it is not a fearful occasion it's something to be excited about why perfect love cast out of what are you afraid of what are you afraid of you've been perfected in love it says we love him because he first loved us We love him because he first loved us. The same way we forgive because he forgave. We give because he first gave. We love because he first loved. Finally says anyone who says I love God again repetition but hates his brother he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen how can you claim to love God as you say so you say I love you Lord um what is this as long as i am living i will always worship you the next day ah brother john sister gbemi please give me gary say get out of here <laughs> you're a liar no you gbemi sorry i shouldn't have used the example <laughs> but anyone who <laughs> anyone who claims to love god and you don't love him, he says you are you are a liar is lori ro so this is the first lori ro in in scriptures How can you it says I mean think about it a god you have not seen you are singing up and down I love god I love god but your brethren that you can see you don't love them it says no and then finally it says this is the command again repetition the previous phase was the command believe the gospel believe that Jesus is the son of god walk in love it says it again this is the command he who loves god must love his brother also so This was not a super difficult push. I mean there were a few things to clarify. But what what I want us to see is that emphasis. There is a reason John is right repeating. It's not because he doesn't have anything to say. It's not because uh, writer's block. So let me just keep let me just keep writing. No. There is an emphasis he wants you to pick up. That if you read this book and you don't pick it, you've wasted your time. You've wasted your time. And what is that emphasis? 
that anyone who claims to be in fellowship with God has the spirit of God. First of all, there's an implication in in you being able to overcome false teachings. But not only that, you walk in law. You see God as the example in the gospel and you are able to replicate. It's not just something we say. He has already John has multiple times made it clear that those who just say and don't do, there's a problem. It's something that we do. Yes, we know you love God. How would we know? We would see it in your relationship with the brethren. We would see it in your relationship with the brethren. Do you forgive? Do you care? Are you generous? Do you do you do you seek do you put people above yourself? That is your testimony that indeed I have truly come to know the love of God in the gospel. Amen. Amen and amen. Final questions. Thank you for bearing with me for 10 extra minutes. Next week, we're going to round up John, 1 John 5. And by God's grace, the week after that, we'll do both 2nd and 3rd John at the same time. So we're officially going to be done with all John has to tell us in the epistles. But hope hope everything was clear. And are there any questions? Usually, it's there, there aren't really questions. But if you have any questions, going, going, went. Hallelujah. So yeah, we're, we're making progress, small, small. Don't worry. I think we might go back to Paul. I've missed Paul. Two weeks, three weeks, and I don't read Paul. I'm like, ah, what's going on? <laughs> no, I did that. I did that intentionally. I did that intentionally. <laughs> don't worry. I know small English. <laughs> Anyways, let us pray. Dear Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the epistle of 1 John. Thank you for the emphasis and thank you because it gives us a chance to just reflect on our own lives. I pray that like we've read today, as we all have come to believe the gospel, as we all have come to confess your son, as we all have received your spirit, I pray, Lord, help us to walk in our identity. Because we are holy, help us to live holy lives. Because we have been born of God, help us to love one another, not just in words, not just when it's easy to do so, but especially when it's inconvenient, especially when it's something that the world will not do. Help us to stand firm in our identity as children of God in the face of a world that would mock and scorn and hate and help us to bear in our minds that hope that you will be revealed to the world and we are along with you. In Jesus' name, amen.